Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Good afternoon, Joel. Howdy, Rabbi Eric, and welcome all our listeners to the next episode of the Real Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast, dot, dot, dot. Let's get about the dot, dot, dot stuff today, Eric. <laughs> what is on our menu for oh topics to make religion real for people? Well, it has been quite the week, hasn't it? Yes. We got to tap into the invasion of the Capitol last week. Since then, wow, I've seen so many religious or religious-themed issues around our country. Yes. And and as I think is often the case with sensitive and controversial matters, people using religion to justify whatever their beliefs might be, whatever they think is right might be. And I will include myself in that. Um, I, I certainly think that my beliefs, and, and if I dare say so, our beliefs are more open and tolerant and diverse. But uh, I think I still certainly use them to justify various actions, as I think I should. Even those words, open and diverse, those are trigger words for some people who find themselves of a religious bend, and and they hear those words, open, um, diverse, and they assume, okay, these people aren't practicing religion the way it should be practiced. They are uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They are let anything go kind of religious folk. Uh, They no longer stand for anything. Um, and and when I use those terms, open or diverse, I those are stances <laughs> that I am taking because of the God that I Ideals. I worship. Yep. In Judaism, we have a Hebrew word midot. You'd probably spell that M I D D O T, and it stands for qualities that a person has. And there are various time frames within Judaism where one is actually supposed to quote unquote work on their midot, whether it's selfishness or loving kindness or generosity. And yeah, I think those are the highest ideals of midot that we have. It's interesting when you talk about kind of the trigger words and and people using that. I, I think back to an argument I had with a very dear friend of mine who at the time uh, was a fairly conservative, politically conservative uh, Catholic and is now a Greek Orthodox priest. And we were talking about abortion. And I wasn't trying to convince him to be pro-choice, which I was and am, staunchly so. But I was trying to understand why it was so important for him and others who share his belief and mindset to not only refuse to have an abortion in their own lives and in their own family's lives, which is their own choice, but to mandate it essentially for me. And I think about that sometimes with things like what is happening in our country. It's one thing 
to think that something should be a certain way for you and you choose to live your life that way, whether it be being a vegetarian or having a certain religious bent or a political bent, but to almost mandate that everyone else be like that is where we lose the fabric of freedom and democracy and what I would say religious ideals. You you might uh, be careful there, Rabbi Eric, because uh, there are folks who say, don't mandate upon me the requirement to wear a mask. Don't mandate upon me the uh, these other COVID restrictions. And, and so we... I wonder how it looks in the religious oh, community right. versus the cultural or – Oh, I'm sorry. No, what, I mean you're right. It, yeah, it's painful. right? What does it look like in the religious community versus the community that is the country when we say, all right, based off of what we know, facts, uh, real live provable stances from professionals – for the health and of our community, we all need to abide by these covenant restrictions and guidelines and things versus the beliefs that we have. And, and what does it look like when we realize, oh, okay, I can't impose a medical fact on everyone because my it conflicts with my personal beliefs. I I am confused lately why religious people can't handle the difference between a a fact or a, a piece of knowledge and a belief or an opinion and and why religion is being used as a way to to uh, debate facts and knowledge but being used as sacrosanct proof of beliefs and opinions. Well, you, you asked a tough one there, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've had enough coffee yet today. I mean, my first thought really is, again, if, if I and we are being honest, I think I do that from the pulpit all the time. I say that Judaism says something, and of course, in my in my heart and in my integrity, I think that to be the, the truth. But there's no question that another rabbi w- might think the complete opposite, coming from the exact same tradition, even the same text, perhaps. I, I think one way that I tackle it is the power of community, and you know when you talk about the mask mandate, it is about the good of the many. And of course, this is tricky if we go back to abortion, because I'm sure many anti-abortionists consider the pro-life stance to be the good of the many. And I'm empathetic to that, even as much as I disagree with it, right? Mm, yes. I, I, I'm i not sure why uh, thoughts, ideas, concepts, when we preach – it's really clear to everybody we can't prove God, so it's clearly a belief slash opinion. But there are times when I'm preaching, and I will say something about a, a letter of Paul, and I'll say, I, I know it says it's written by Paul, but it probably wasn't. And and that is from our best historical criticisms. We know 
how Paul talked. We know the language and word choices and theologies he used. We, we see him evolve over time. And we know when he lived and probably when he died, so the events that happened in that window of his life. And then we get this second or third letter, third generation letter that come from Paul's followers or somebody writing in Paul's name. And it's different vocab. It's different theology. There's um, obvious markers that there were different world events that happened never in Paul's life. And I can say pretty confidently almost factually, yeah, Paul didn't write that letter. But for some people, religious people, they still want to believe Paul did. And and for them, the truth of it is dependent on it matching their belief that it came from Paul. And for me, it doesn't really matter to me whether Paul wrote it or not. I can still find a truth in it and preach toward that through my lens of opinions and beliefs. But a preacher's always pushing beliefs and opinions um, with sprinklings of facts around them. I don't want politicians who do that. I want politicians who push facts and provable theories and scientifically valued evidence and then have some beliefs about how to apply that to make our world better. And I, I mean, Joe, I'll be honest. Right now, I'll settle just for one that doesn't outright lie. But <laughs> I, I do hear you. What does it look like for a politician to to express their policy opinions based off of fact and research? And can we think of a politician who's actively doing that instead of speaking more often out of a belief slash opinion space. Or ego or desire. I mean, there's so many human motivations at play there. I'll tell you, the story about Paul resonates so much with me because we have the same sort of discrepancy with the Torah itself. Most Reformed Jews if you ask them who wrote the Torah, they will say people wrote the Torah. Whether, you know, some people will talk about people who were divinely inspired or authors writing over a different time period. And we call that the documentary hypothesis. It's, it's a, if you read biblical scholars that this has been researched and written about, um, our own, when I say our own, he, he lives in Athens and is a, I'm proud to say is a congregant of mine, uh, Dr. Richard Elliott Friedman, who literally wrote the book, Who Wrote the Bible? Um, that kind of outlines this. So if anyone's interested in, in that, I suggest you read that book. Um, but for me, as you said, it, it doesn't really matter. And there's this beautiful story, if you'll forgive the um, slight aside for a moment, that a, a rabbi told this story um, once that uh, uh, someone's being tried for a crime. So this is the story. Someone's being tried for a crime. And the attorney asks the judge about if, if he could present a character witness for his client. The judge says, sure, but tell me about this character witness. And so the attorney says, well, let me tell you what a mensch, what a good person this character witness is, is that one day he woke up and he saw all of his prized possessions being stolen. And he could, he woke up and he saw the thief and he could just tell the hurt 
that was happening in the life of essentially this thief. And so instead of calling for the police or defending himself, he basically let the thief take all of his things. It, as an aside, it reminds me of Jean Valjean with the candles in, in Les Mis, right? And so the judge says, give me a break. Did that really happen? Is that really true? And then the attorney says, honestly, judge, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I know this. They don't tell stories like that about you or me. And then the rabbi brings it back and says, and that's what the Torah is. It, whether it's factually true or not misses the point. It's the story we tell ourselves about who we are. That, that helps. There was a, a story like that from our Reformed Christian side of things where uh, Professor Karl Barth was, uh, was seminary students. And one of the seminary students kind of pushed back against the professor one day and said, are you trying to tell me that you believe a snake talked, referring to Genesis and the creation and the temptation of Adam and Eve? And Professor Bart said, I don't really know or care if a snake talked. I just want to know what he said. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, I'm using that. That's, that's it's so much shorter than my story, too. <laughs> and And I think what we've learned about the story of humanity is that the greatest myths, legends, stories that we continue to hold on to or retell with different characters and different settings, they have a similar pattern to them. Uh, and, and that similar pattern reminds us of our ideals, our aspirations, our true character, what it looks like when we're helping each other versus hurting each other or hurting, helping ourselves and hurting ourselves. And those great stories linger and the bad ones die. And I'm, I'm glad the bad ones die. The bad stories die where, you know, the greedy guy stole a bunch of money and lived happily ever after. Nobody writes that story uh, because it, that there's no such thing. <laughs> the greedy guy who steals a bunch of money gets arrested or lives sadly ever after and dies a broken conscience. And I also think that that kind of story doesn't give, it doesn't lift up a, a, a tension in ourselves where we think about our own lives or what we should do. And I think th that is when scripture is most meaningful to me. It's not necessarily that Abraham and Moses and, and Sarah uh, and all of our matriarchs and patriarchs were perfect and we should idealize them. In fact, it's, in some ways, it's the opposite and that their imperfections cause us a little bit of tension. It causes us to think about it a little bit and how we want to react in our own lives. We spent a lot of time last week unpacking truth and what truth is and how to find it. And that's what's had me over this last week trying to figure out if that tension in us is confusion in us about what we can know versus what we believe. And and some might even call it a head-heart tension if we were to I, – I don't know if that's fair, right? Our 
what we can know is both a head and a heart thing, and what we believe is both a head-heart thing. But if we want to play along with the simplistic way people sometimes do humanity, let's assume that our head can know things and that our heart can believe things. It seems really clear lately that people are less concerned with knowledge and, and facts and truth and uh, willing to dismiss those things because of the beliefs and preferences of our uh, heart slash emotion space. And, and I'm not sure that religion uh, is immune from that, like you were saying. It's, it is clearly, it bends toward that. But we're a space where it's harder to prove things. I've had people ask me all the time, wait, you're an engineer who became a preacher? Why did you do that? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, oh, it makes perfect sense. I, an engineering space is a space that is very much provable. I can find formulas to calculate the strength of that beam. And I can tell you in advance whether it's going to break when you load it with that much weight. The religious world, the God world, who God is and what God is doing and why God is doing it, that is a debatable world. It is a world of some history and, tra- and tradition, but it's even those history and traditions are opinions and beliefs of those who came before us. And that's why the conversation continues and probably will, will never end. But I don't see why we keep it. Why, why the conversation about facts? <laughs> why, why doesn't that conversation end? Well, I think, I mean, there's so many branching off points from this. It's it's kind of unending. Um, you know, one thing, I, I think it was the Christian theologian. You, you, might, you might correct me on this if I'm wrong. His eyes just just opened up everyone. He's like, the rabbi's talking about Christianity? Um, Paul Tillich, uh, who's a famous uh, theologian, wrote about ultimate concern. And I, my favorite book of all time is The Little Prince, and The Little Prince talks about matters of consequence. And I think of those two in a very similar vein, that it's not necessarily about two different facts. It's about one thing is a matter of consequence, of ultimate concern for me, and the other, you know, what the temperature was this afternoon. Well, it might not be trivial if you're outside, right? But but. It, there are things that are much more trivial, and I and there's a reason why millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions, have fought and died for their religious beliefs, because though those are elevated to a place of ultimate concern, even if people don't necessarily say they're facts. People, it's, it's like I think last week you were um, offline. I think it was you were talking about the frustration you have when people say, "Well, my truth." I don't remember if it was on the podcast or or offline. It but, was. Um, okay, yeah, uh, but when when also very similarly, you know, well, it's true for me. It's true for me that God wants me to do this. But then there's a fine line between and God wants you to do this, which is why we see people proselytizing and traveling to countries to get people to convert to religion, and that's why there's the wonderful musical Book of Mormon because that happened. <laughs> I was trying to find an analogy for this, this um, this weird unknown space where you you might believe something or you might know it and you aren't sure which one it is yet. Uh, the best example I could 
come up with, see if this makes any sense, is when I was in engineering school uh, and I was trying to get my my bachelor's in mechanical and aerospace engineering, I had to take Calc 1, 2, 3, 4, and differential equations, plus a bunch of physics classes, just as prerequisites to get into my starter engineering classes. And I remember Calc 1 was fine, and Calc 2, yeah, no problem, and Calc 3, okay, this is getting weird, and Calc 4, wait just a damn minute. (laughs) And the professor was showing us things and telling us they are true. Not that they are opinions or beliefs. He is telling us these things are true. This is how math, calculus, differential, uh, differentiation and integration work. And I believed him, but I didn't know it yet. I didn't know it was a fact. I just had to believe him. And he told me the the habits to go through and the rituals to go through and the disciplines to go through and the practices to go through in order to get the right answer. And then one day, some, and I don't remember, I just, I remember where I was in this weird study room up in the back top corner of the engineering department, studying with Yarek and John Baker and zap, like it was no longer a theoretical opinion belief that calculus worked this way, it clicked into place and I saw it. And, and then I couldn't unsee it. I, it was no longer a belief or opinion. It was knowledge. And I, I got through that. And then I could, <laughs> without that, I would have never passed fluid dynamics or mechanics of materials. <laughs> but oh my gosh. because it clicked, I was like, ah, I see it. And everywhere I applied it, it worked. Because it is undeniably true. I, I didn't get that until I did. And, and I wonder what it's like for religious people who sit in pews and listen to you and me and other preachers preach. And we're trying to tell them things that we know and things that we believe. And they aren't sure which is which. And sometimes maybe we're not. And we're trying to figure out which of these things do we really know and which of these things are we just crossing our fingers and believing is true, hoping it is true. Uh, and I, I want to find a way for the political conversations and the religious conversations that you and I enter into with others for it to always keep those two lenses up and, and we remind each other, don't get these confused. And don't attribute to knowledge the power of a belief and don't attribute to a belief the power of knowledge. Let, let the two be what they are and be enough as they are. And for me, I think I, the spectrum for me or the, the dialectic there would be between truth and desire. Because I, I think – for me, the distinction between belief and knowledge is small enough that um, it's a matter of degree. It's not it's not completely they're not completely divorced from each other. Whereas when one confuses re- truth or reality from desire, I think that's where um, we become self-deluded. And sometimes, by the way, in a good way. And I, I think about when we pastor or comfort people who've had a tragedy 
in their lives who've lost someone suddenly, unexpectedly. And they talk about that person um, being in a better place or I know I'll see them, um, you know, in it, when, when it's my turn, right? I don't personally believe that's true, but I'm not going to tell them that when I'm holding their hand crying with them, right? Now, if they ask me in an adult ed, and this happens all the time in kind of an intellectual setting, we're studying a piece of Talmud or text or whatever. Rabbi, do you believe in life after death? I, I, I'll talk about it and say no. It's like, incidentally, it's one of my favorite things to teach on. I found it to be fascinating from a Jewish standpoint specifically, um, most notably because the Jewish belief and beliefs on life after death have evolved over time. It's not just a question of do we or don't we. It's also when we. Um, and I'm sure, you know, that very well might be similar in, in other denominations and other religions. Um, but for me, it's the, it's the elevation of our deepest desires to, well, clearly God wants me to do this because I want to do this. A, a professor of mine, and I use this analogy all the time. It works for all kinds of things. It's like, you know, uh, it's, it's like using a uh, bow I can't think of the word because clearly I'm not an archer. It's using a bow, uh, you know, shooting uh, shooting an arrow out and then painting the bullseye around where it lands. As opposed to the bullseye already exists. You are this close to it. You're this far from it. Your differential equations can figure out the 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 math of the parabola of the of the of the arrow as it curves, right? Um, but that ultimately there is. Uh, an objective, you know, Jews would talk about what God wants from us, what God demands from us, as opposed to, well, I'm doing this, therefore God wants me to do that. And I think we as people do that all the time, not with any um, malicious intent, but I, I, I don't know of many people who think that they're bad people. And so very oftentimes you think you're doing the right thing. Others may not think you're doing the right, the right thing. I'm sorry, you think you're doing the right thing. Um, and I, there's a humility piece there. And then, and then I'll end this little, this little rant. Um, a, a classmate of mine, when we were in Israel at the time, first year students, we were talking about, uh, if I remember correctly, the fact that in Reformed Judaism, we both as an individual and as a community can some can essentially choose which mitzvot, which laws we follow, and equally important, which ones we don't. And someone was asking, kind of, well, does that mean anything goes? And you know, what one of the one of the unfortunate stereotypes of liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism specifically. And we talked about what not being a cognitive minority of one. You can think whatever you want. But as a community, as a people, Am Yisrael, we say in Hebrew, the, the people of Israel, which, which not the country, the, uh, you know, the Jews, basically, we act for the good of the community. And for me, that community is the whole world, not only Am Yisrael. Um, and so I could think whatever I want, but there's also that humility piece of what do others think about this? Is this good for others? And, and that sort of thing. Even there, as you are trying to verbalize it, right, and you and I will do this, we'll grasp and struggle to find the word and we'll give each other plenty of line to see if we can get anywhere close. You use the word think 
I think, for <laughs> believe. And and I'm trying to figure out can can I practice a vocabulary use where a thought right isn't a knowledge thing? It's a thought. So to think a thought is to wonder, and I don't know. And to believe is to assume, you know, to build a theory that I don't have necessarily evidence for, but I'm going to believe it anyway. What is the what is the other side of that? If a if we have a thought or a belief, what is the other thing? It doesn't have to be truth. Is it knowledge? Like to know something. Is that different than to think something? Well, you know, th- this is bringing back, you know, you, you, you were having flashbacks to uh, engineering classes. I'm having flashbacks of when I was a, a grad student in philosophy for a year before I wanted, before I decided that uh, the rabbinet was, was a better fit and um, learning about positivism, Karl Popper and Wittgenstein. And um, I think they called themselves the Vienna Circle or they were part of the Vienna Circle. And there was this whole debate about um, not whether something is true or not, but whether something is meaningful or not. And one of the thinkers, I, I want to say it's Popper, but I could be completely mistaken, talked about uh, something is meaningful if it can be verifiable, which that, and what's interesting about that is something false then can be meaningful. It's just whether or not it can be verifiable. So by that logic, you know, God existing, not meaningful because it can't be proven one way or the other. Um, it's just an interesting, I, I think it adds another layer um, because again, we tend in religion to have our beliefs very much commingled with our deepest fears, our wishes, our desires. And I also think about um, as if, so I use this, often from the pulpit, sometimes I talk about believing as if God was a certain way and then acting as if God is a certain way. Whether or not God is or isn't, it doesn't matter, but we act as if it were the case. Right. Because uh, I think the reason we're having this conversation is not because we want to philosophically debate the difference between a belief and a not and knowledge or a thought uh, slash opinion and knowledge, but because we see actions that and words, we hear words coming out of human beings because of their religious training or their religious rituals, their religious disciplines, their habits, where they get confused about what they are embodying their belief, even if that belief is counterfactual, or they are embodying their thought, their opinion, even if it's against common knowledge. And and I'm trying to wonder, you know, I keep wondering, you called it a problem of the will, maybe. Uh, and and I'm okay with that. I, I would like to, uh, I don't believe that my will or any individual's will is pure or can be good. I don't even believe it's free. Uh, a lot of people are like, what? Christians have to believe in free will. No, we don't believe it or not. <laughs> no, there is a whole version of Christianity where, in the realm that I'm in where even our will 
is a subject to sin, the sin of those who came before us and our own choices. So we can't even will <laughs> the good that God wants for the world. And and I trust that my stained or whatever will, insufficient will, gets thoughts, feelings, opinions, knowledge confused. And therefore, I speak and act out of that confusion. But I I feel like there are some of these points, even in the religious space or political space, where simple, easily provable facts and knowledge and truth should just make us stop instantly and not say that anymore, not believe that anymore, and and back up. I, as an engineer who became a pastor, I have a lot of space in my life where I try to believe things. But if somebody ever shows me knowledge, fact, that undermines what I used to believe, so be it. I had to start over. That, that's the humility piece for me is being and, – and I think I said this in, in my sermon uh, last Friday, um, which, which – uh, because it's on this topic of truth, I'll make sure it's in our show notes this week, is that uh, each of us has to be willing to be wrong. It doesn't mean we can't stand fundamentally with our values and principles, but we have to not, it's not only a question of defending them. It's a question of really, truly looking at them and thinking, is this the right thing to believe in with the acceptance of new knowledge that may change what you believe? And I, I think that's of the utmost importance. And, and I also think, I, I I don't know why I'm playing devil's advocate so much today, but um, you know, if we think about the process by which each of us wrote our our sermons in the last two weeks, I I would imagine. Well, I'll just tell you. For me, I knew I wanted to talk about um, the emphasis that Judaism places on truth and God's truth, and how we are but a small part of that, and that um, even if it's against our own self interest, we have to. Just like the exact things we're talking about. But I am – when and when I quote scripture or a midrash, which is a story that's not in Torah or scripture, I am cherry-picking, right? I mean I'm, I'm thinking of a theme and I'm thinking of, okay, this quote goes with this theme. And it is very likely true that if I wanted to pick a, a quote or a story or a prayer that to, went in a completely different direction, I could – and so it's not only a question, and this is what makes it so complicated for me, it's not only a question of are they telling the truth, but it's also what facts are being highlighted and what facts aren't being highlighted. Which is why our oath is truth, whole truth, nothing but truth. Unless we're doing all of that, we're not capturing it. Uh, we have a discipline in in many Christian preachers' uh, worlds. We have the discipline of electionary, and you and I might have talked about that. I don't know if we've talked about it on a podcast. In other words, I think we some, did a little bit, right? Some other greater body of leaders and teachers design a set of scriptures that try to represent the width and breadth of the the story that we're of God that we're trying to tell. And what Caitlin and I are doing from the first Sunday of Advent, way back on the at, at the end of November, 
all the way to Easter in April, we are in the Gospel of Luke. And we are just, we started at Luke 1, and we're going all the way to the end. And we're, we're, we are picking verses because you can't read the whole thing in that many Sundays. So, but what we'll say is, okay, let's find some verses from chapter four and talk about that. Let's find some verses from chapter five and talk about that. And it's kind of our discipline to keep us from hardcore cherry picking. And it, it does help. But even once we get into that specific chapter, I do find myself trying to, okay, Joel, differentiate here. <laughs> What you know about this text from what it says and what you've studied and the historical context in which it was written and the way those who the authors and other amazing theologians have used this text in the past versus what you now think or wonder or believe or have an opinion about as this text tries to change the way we live this our lives in this particular world. Because the text you and I read it wasn't written for the world that we are in, but we believe it still has power here. So our very use of an ancient scripture today is not a fact. It's not based off something we know. It's based on something we believe, that this these ancient texts had meaning then and were remembered for their meaning and have held on through time because they still have meaning. So we give them we give them the credibility of belief. And and I'm okay with that. Where I get really messed up is when somebody goes, "No, the earth was invented 6,000 some odd years ago." And I want to say, "Good grief. Humanity just barely split off from the Neanderthals maybe 350,000 years ago." If you're doing the math right. on the Bible, you're you're now uh, trumping truth with your belief <laughs> about Scripture. And, and what I want you to do is take the hardcore knowledge we have about the history of civilization and humanity and let that be true. And then build your beliefs off of the solid foundation of knowable truth. So there's a, there's a beautiful metaphor in Judaism to the uh, the symbol of the menorah, and I'm for listeners may know that we light a menorah on Hanukkah, and you and I talked about that I guess last month. But the menorah um, is a staple of, of Judaism, and it was one of the symbols in in the temple in Jerusalem, and it had uh, unlike the Hanukkah, which is the menorah for Hanukkah, it had seven lights. And uh, there's a beautiful teaching that six of the lights are the lights of the world, science, knowledge, fact, discernible evidence. And the seventh light is faith, hope, love, those sorts of things. And we need all seven. And you probably light the seventh one last. Well, in this this case, um, it's not really used anymore. I mean, no one has a seven-tier menorah that's used, but the, just the idea that we take the world and the, the science of the world. I mean, I think of Galileo, right, who went against the beliefs of his time to show truth, and look what happened to him. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, this is a constant, constant struggle. What, what I find difficult, um, and this is going to sound more egotistical than I mean it to, is light, and you put it so well, of you didn't use this word, but integrity. There is an integrity when you craft a sermon or a teaching to, as you said, differentiate your own personal stuff from your years of expertise and learning in cemetery, cemetery, in seminary, <laughs> and your knowledge of scripture and those things. And sometimes it frustrates me when congregants are upset about something I said that they don't see that distinction. And I can't prove it to them. I can't say, well, I, you know, I, I literally spent three hours thinking about, can I say this from, a Jewish perspective versus Eric's own perspective. And I, I think that is a challenge that all clergy have. And it's a good challenge. We should have that challenge. Um, I just wish there was a way without, you know, without, <laughs> without seeming like a jerk, really, of, of showing our people that that integrity does exist. And unfortunately, I'm not sure it does in every Preacher. And by the way, for our listeners, I can tell you 100% what, what Joel says is true. I was with him. I don't know if you know the story I'm going to tell, but I was with him at a, at a coffee shop and, you know, a woman came up to us with a tattered Bible and, and started kind of spewing off things. And I just wanted to walk away. And Joel very respect of, respectfully, but also very firmly said, no, ma'am. That is not true. That is not what Jesus did. That is not what Jesus said. And you just kept reiterating it over and over again. I remember that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were just just inside the bypass over there in Oconee County, Georgia. And she wanted to find her way to a particular congregation. And she had some very messed up views about about God and faith and life and what is right and wrong and good and holy. Um, and what usually happens to me when I get somebody who's trying to tell me what God believes from those kind of angles is they are regurgitating what they've been told God believes. 100%. They, at some point, they were in a community with leadership and they had habits of saying, this is who God is. This is what God wants. This is what is true. This is what is not true. And usually there was some cherry-picked scriptures plucked out in order to validate that. I find if you really study the wider scriptures, the context of the phrase or the verse that they remember in its 8, 10, 12 verses context, then if you study that chunk, the pericope of verses in its wider book and you show them the socio-cultural historical context of what was going on when that book was written – you will break people. You will crush them. They, yep. Everything they've held true and dear is suddenly destroyed by things that I can prove. Like what I realize now is when I was going through seminary, the reason we took Old Testament and New Testament or you know Hebrew Bible and Greek Bible, it, it was to rock our world. There are a lot of people who say, don't go to seminary, you'll lose your faith. And now what I say to them is, good, you need to lose it because it's been, And then rebuild it. That's right. It's been built on things that weren't necessarily true. You want to- This is that- oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I just, just one sentence. This is that second naivete that we were talking about. You had a different term for it. 
that you used, but that, but the same idea, absolutely. Reorientation from yes. uh, Walter Brueggemann. He co-author with Friedman on several great you know books about the Hebrew Bible, and he talks about you know there's an orientation, and then there's disorientation when you lose all the the tent posts and anchors that hold you together, and then reorientation when you come back around. And and I don't like doing it to people. I don't like when they come to me and they are so sure of their orientation, but then it's it's really obvious that, oh, you don't really know the story of Job very well. You don't know the story of Jonah. Now, you're quoting Job and Jonah and all these things at me very quickly, assuming you know what they mean, but you don't know anything about Tarshish or Nineveh. You don't know about the vine at the at the end of Jonah that grew up and then shriveled and like if you don't know that how can you assume to know the or believe the truth that the wider story of Jonah is trying to teach you you grabbed one little thing uh, and you've decided that that is an ultimate factual truth in you and now you will not let it go and I, what I want to tell you is uh uh-uh, that is a very partial belief you are holding on to yeah, I mean, and it's oftentimes from an English translation of Greek or Hebrew. And I mean, someone like you who can say where the Greek came from. I mean, there, there, there's always a context and there's, there's always more. And, you know, I think about this because that takes effort to read the whole story, to know the history, to seek out a teacher, which, by the way, according to Judaism, is one of the things everyone must do is to seek out a teacher. For me, it's part of that humility piece again. Um, but it, it, it's much easier to read a tweet without uh, just believe it or, or to, to actually be the one saying the tweet, right? And, and I, it's difficult because this sort of stuff takes effort. And if you are, if one is going to have such a pronounced, concerted belief that, that is their, uh, ultimate concern or matter of consequence, you know, do your homework, right? As, as we all need to. I mean, just, especially when, I mean, when I often ask my, um, when, Students are going through the bar about mitzvah process when they're 12 and 13 years old and they meet for, with me for the first time. I ask them, who do you think wrote the, wrote the, wrote the Torah? And oftentimes a lot of them say God. Sometimes I wonder if it's, they, they want me. They think that I want them to say God, right? So they say, God, really? God wrote it. Well, clearly you've read it then. No. If God wrote it, how, you know, so it's like, it's like pointing out those inconsistencies are important. I was 32 when I went to seminary and I came from an evidence-based profession. So when I stepped into uh, survey classes, we called them, where they are going to break everything down as to the smallest knowable truths that we can manage. I ate that stuff up. I was excited. You know, a professor told me, we know because of this and this and this that this happened. And we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and Qumran and we've studied them and now we know this. And we used to didn't, uh, we used to think of it differently, but now we know this. And I'm just lapping that up and I'm watching some of the others around me 
um, just disintegrate and and argue with the professor because something about she's showing us what the Greek says. She is telling us we know what it says and what it translates as. And they're reading it in their new living paraphrase, <laughs> right? right? That is always said it the other way, or the new King James Version where their preachers always preached it another way. And they can't let go of the belief that the way they've always thought of it or believed it was not enough. And what I try to do now is so that I don't hurt people when I give them a new corner of truth is invite them to hold on to one way that they've held on to for a long time, but set that on the shelf like a book and think of it now as you're going to have a bookshelf of all the things that you try to know and believe and leave your old one up there, right? But now write a new one and put that on your shelf. And then, ooh, write a third one and put that on your shelf. It's a great visualization of that. So you don't have to, you don't have to burn the book of the way you used to believe it or think about it. Okay, that was a season of your life and it made sense for you and it was enough and it got you through a few hard times. But I want to show you something else, another way to believe it based off of some more things that we know are true. And and a lot of people will struggle with that because sometimes the truth of what we know will undermine the way we used to believe. And for me when that happens, it's a party. Like, woohoo, I'm going to get better at this now. I wow, I found a, somebody showed me a mistake in the way that I was thinking and talking about God. And they've just enlightened me to it. I won't make that mistake anymore. Thank you. You fixed something in me that was really broken. And I was probably doing harm to myself and others when I spoke out of that misconception. Wow. Thank you. But I I find that most people are like, uh, don't mess with me. Don't mess with my construct. Um, I had a mentor one time that said, Joel... I, I don't go uh, kicking people's crutches out from under them. And that's what he meant. He said some people would rather walk around through life on their crutches of belief. And if you show them another way, it's it's like yanking their crutches out from under them. My response to him, of course, was the man in the New Testament who is laying by the pool of Siloam because he can't walk. And Jesus comes up to him and says, um, do you want to be healed? And the man goes, every time I get to the water, it's not, it's not moving anymore. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he goes, nobody will carry me to the water. And Jesus is like, do you want to be healed? And, and that was my response to that mentor is, in some ways, I feel like my responsibility is to ask people, hey, I see your crutches. I see you're limping around through life on this one. Can I show you something that would help heal? Um, and now what, what I've learned is if I get the negative response a couple times, I just let it go. <laughs> right. 
Well, that that's I think the the practical aspect of having a congregation where you where we we work and and see people all you know and and have to work with them. Um, but I I think that's that's our job to do that. I mean, it, it's not our job to needle people. Um, but I, I think the way you expressed it uh, in an earlier conversation to encourage, right, to to be gentle and to help people ourselves also move. And and, and like we talked about earlier, it it depends on context. You're not going to do that when they've ex- when, when they're hurting, when they're, when they're grieving. You're going to do that later. Um, and that's just part of, of being caring and loving our people. So is that um, habit of Judaism to seek out a teacher, a rabbi, a mentor, is that habit to um, require a believer to submit to the authority of someone else's knowledge? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the, that quote appears in, in a book of texts called Pirkei Avot, the, the ethics or the sayings of our, of our ancestors. And though it's probably the only part of our Talmud that is very pithy. It, I, I sometimes, the, the sayings are like, um, fortune cookies. They're very short, easy to read, mostly inspirational. Um, like one of them is the world stands on th- three things, Torah, worship, and acts of loving kindness, period. Um, and then, so they're sayings like that. Um, it, it's, it's not like other parts of the Talmud where there's these in-depth arguments and going back and forth to find the source and things like that. Um, it could be argued that the rabbis are trying to reinforce their own system, their, their own laws that they're expanding on in the Talmud. Um, but I like to think of it as, as, uh, a continuation of what God tells Abraham, lech lecha, go forth. Not just moving one foot in front of another, but spiritually go forth. Move forward in your life. And that takes courage. That takes hope. Like Abraham, we don't know where that will take us. Um, but it will take us, as God promises Abraham, to a place of blessing. My experience of, and I want to differentiate, experience is not knowledge. <laughs> experience is often belief as well, right? So I just because I experienced something and it, something happened a certain way, I can't know that it will always happen that way. I can just wonder slash believe if that's typical. My experience of a mentor is someone who knows things I don't. And they help me figure out the difference between my beliefs and my knowledge. They, they give me the extra knowledge that I need to make my beliefs better. And, and I love that, right? Um, where I might have experienced something zero times or one time and built some assumptions on a very small <laughs> subset. They have experienced it many times and therefore have a, a more nuanced and more accurate theory slash assumption of how things can and cannot work. And they share that mm. with me. And so then I don't have to personally experience it. I can have my experience and theirs 
both in me. It's kind of like parenting, right? We we teach our kids things so they don't have to learn them the hard way. Note, Eric, they still have to learn them the hard way. You, you, <laughs> you, can't, you can't save them from learning it the hard way. And, so, and by the way, so did the parents. Right. So last last week after we talked last week, I had already scheduled John three or Luke three, where John the Baptist is down by the Jordan, and and I picked that text last October. Now the way John starts his preaching to the people is, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to run from the consequences that are about to land on your your city and your people?" and and I and the people respond to John by saying, well, what do you want us to do? And and I made two big points out of that. One, John is prophetically honest and truthful with them, and they don't unfollow him on Facebook. <laughs> they don't run out the synagogue or sanctuary and threaten to move their membership and never give another penny. They... They ask him an honest question, a humble question. Wow, you're showing us a truth that we hadn't seen yet. It doesn't really match what we believe, but what do you want us to do? And and I thought that was amazing and hoped that we would take some <laughs> some comfort in that when we hear a hard yeah. truth in our world today. The other thing I said is Jesus sought out John as a mentor, as a teacher. Um, and I didn't know until you said it today in the podcast that that was a, a Jewish tradition to go find your rabbi, your mentor. Uh, and but the reason I said that is because I've already pre-read the rest of Luke again, and I realize Jesus is going to sound a lot like John for the next 20-plus chapters and mm. it's because of him hanging out with his mentor, John, and hearing John's awesome ability to speak a hard truth to people who needed to hear it to bring true healing for them. Uh, he didn't say it because he's mad at them or judge them. He said it to them because he loved them and he, he wanted to help them. That's nice. That's really That's really powerful. This week it's Satan. Who the heck is Satan, Eric? Oh, I think that's a whole nother topic. We'll have to save that one for another day. <laughs> With our, our never-ending uh, list of, of topics. And if any listeners out there do wish for uh, me and Eric to talk about something in particular, send it to uh, religion, yeah, religionpodcast at gmail.com, I think is our email address. And uh, yeah, I, I think too, if there's not only if there's something you'd like us to talk about, but if you have an idea for a segment or, or something we, we can do, I think we're, we're open to that. We're still kind of just getting started here, but we, we love talking to each other and uh, we love uh, hopefully having some people listen to us. I think we're at double digits now, man. There we go. Phenomenal. <laughs> As always, blessings on you, Rabbi Linder, and may your, may your Sabbath uh, and sermon tomorrow go beautifully. 
Well, you as well for Sunday, and uh, I wish you shalom, peace, and fullness. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.